quite a roller coaster. <laughs> this path. Thirty-three years ago, I had an inspiring experience on a retreat. The first... I didn't actually try to run away like Tanisra did, but I actually thought about it. My mind was just crazy for three days. But then, like I said, I have a snapping turtle instinct. So I did grab onto my nose pretty strong to the breath. I did catch that much, observe the breath. And I had an experience where I uh, was standing outside in front of a bush And I noticed these uh, thousands of dewdrops. They were just so beautiful. I just stood there enjoying the beauty of just standing, looking, being with that. That was so different, delicious for me, having spent a lifetime striving to win the next tournament. I used to be a, a championship wrestler or to to win the next award in academics. That was so delicious, a a quality of beauty and peacefulness in in something simple. And, uh, you know, standing by bushes was not in my category of important experiences. So then when I heard about a great forest master in the uh, northeast of Thailand who had a few Westerners with him, I thought, well, I'll go and uh, do this meditation thing a year, maybe two years max, and I'm going to blow this baby apart. If I can get peaceful, and okay, three days of hell, but, you know, fourth, fifth day, get some peace, then, you know, God, a year. The path is much more arduous than I thought. (laughs) But I'm very grateful for having encountered it because uh, someone today was sharing in the in our small groups about the roller coaster ride of the mind, and I said, well, why didn't you run away? And very beautifully he said, there's nowhere else to go. I've tried everything else. And the Buddha said, it is easier to conquer thousands of warriors on a battlefield than it is to master oneself, to really come to terms with this Mysterious experience. Very challenging. And yet, what more noble thing can we do? Because when we totally stay asleep, unconsciously we can wreak so much havoc in the world. 
or we might feel like we're not doing much, as we've said before. What's happening here in these few days is, I believe, and experience and feel is emanating a really auspicious and bright energy into the world. Okay, many of us have run into some demons, some orphans, some wilderness places in the soul, some boring, heavy, sleepy bits, some angry, discouraged, crazy bits. And yet in in this uh, willingness, in this effort to listen, we've been smelting all those orphans of consciousness, all those what ordinarily can be real afflictions, smelting smelting them into patience, into understanding, into, and very importantly, in this really cruel, what seems like a cruel world, smelting these experiences that aren't easy to be with into compassion, the capacity to rip our hearts past our boundaries, past what we think I can bear. That's a dying. We've been dying and finding we have a little more capacity, a little more capacity. Because actually our mind is limitless. We've just forgotten it. We've forgotten that original limitless brightness. So we're very pleased, I'm very pleased with the the efforts that everyone is making. This evening we recited the Heart of Prajnaparamita Sutra. If you're not familiar with this text, one can just shake one's head and think, my goodness... Okay, some things they've been doing have been out there quite a ways, but this, I mean, no eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body, mind. Form is not different from emptiness. Emptiness is not different from form. Nonsense. This teaching is, is pointing to the most profound principle Avalokiteshvara, the greatly compassionate one, the one who listens at ease to the sounds of the world, known as the merciful one, is also in Buddhist teachings known as one of profound wisdom whose heart sutra encapsulates most succinctly the mysterious, non-dual, non-fragmented, non-divided, expression of the nature of this reality, this this mysterious reality that we find ourselves in. Prajna Paramita. Paramita, as we've said earlier, is the the word the Buddha used for perfection, that which carries you across the sea of birth and death to the other shore or carries one home 
prajna is the Sanskrit word for panya, wisdom. That's the fifth spiritual faculty. In Pali, it's panya, in Sanskrit, prajna. The Buddha taught that just as sandalwood is the supreme fragrance, the superior fragrance of all the fragrances, it's it's wonderful. So too, he said, is is this wisdom, the superior faculty. All the faculties we've been looking at plunge into the deathless. They take us home. But the most significant one, the one that when it's missing, we still don't arrive at into resting in the true nature of how things are when there's no wisdom, when the wisdom isn't, isn't um, profound. In this discourse, this sutra, when Avalokiteshvara was practicing the profound prajnaparamita, when Avalokiteshvara, when Kuan Yin was practicing this cultivation of wisdom, he illuminated. Sometimes Kuan Yin is talked about he, sometimes she. Kuan Yin is measureless, who out of compassion is vowed to manifest in the way that is most helpful to living beings. So you can't really say Kuan Yin is he or she. But when Kuan Yin was practicing the profound Prajnaparamita, she illuminated the five skandhas and saw that they are all empty. And she crossed beyond all suffering and difficulty. So what we've been doing this week is illuminating the five skandhas, that's the Sanskrit for khandhas, That's another way of talking about the aggregates or the dimensions of our humanity, (laughs) what makes us human, what we identify with as me. Illuminating by inner listening, by mindfulness, we are illuminating, we are listening into, we are exploring, we are allowing the nature of to become clear. Of what? Of our body, of our mind, of our feelings, of our moods, of our impulses, of our suffering. It's a very important principle that wisdom is, the gateway to wisdom is through embracing our humanity. The Buddha tried another track. It didn't work. Those of you who know his life story, remember at one time he figured, okay, this suffering is is just this, well, he tried the, the pleasure route in the palace. He had the most beautiful sights, most beautiful sounds. His father made sure he had the most beautiful attendance. 
those delicate silks. And yet he realized even with pleasure, it, it, he still, it, at one point it penetrated into his heart that he still was subject to old age sickness and death. And he was shocked at his own vanity, his own arrogance, that somehow he thought he was going to be immune from that when he realized, this is what happens to bodies. He said, the vanity of youth left me. And then when he went forth, went out to search for, well, what is, what's it about? Is it just here to, to die? Is there something... Sublime? Is there something trustworthy? Is there something enduring? Is there something that does not die? That was a deep question that he had. He went seeking for it. He actually thought that uh, for a while, well, since the suffering's with this stuff, then you just got to lift out of it. So he found a teacher and and went into very refined states, very formless states where he didn't even experience the body. Even up to not only formlessness, but even neither perception nor non-perception, a tremendously refined state, but he kept coming down. Then he thought, well, I'm coming down. It's... Got to cut, cut this attachment to the body. So then he thought, I'll just torture myself. Pleasure doesn't get me there. Well, then I will just give me pain. Give me as much as you can. I will develop equanimity. And he did. Tortured himself, starved himself. He had tremendous patience, but he realized he was tight as a spring. A steel spring. This isn't peaceful. No one can make more effort than this. No one can be more patient than this. But this is not peace. Then, then he realized that, that there was a version operating. And, and he came around to the recognition of, of having to embrace form, not be attached to it, but not be averse to it. Embrace this human condition and illuminate it with wisdom, first by stabilizing the mind. That's when he received, we talked about, uh, maybe it was this morning, the milk rice. He realized he couldn't practice without food. He received food from the young maiden. That symbol of opening his heart again to the world of form. Replenished his energy. Gathered his mind. And when the mind was composed and gathered and bright, then he illuminated, as we've been doing, looking into this human condition. And he saw that everything is changing. And really deeply seeing that everything is changing, as we've discussed, if everything is changing, then 
to want it to be otherwise is bound to generate suffering. He saw clearly the suffering that comes from asking a condition to be what it can't be. The nature of conditions, light and dark, birth and death, coming and going, pleasure and pain, is unstable. So then he realized that actually it was anatta, not self. That it was like a bubble. He said, when he was observing the Ganges River, it's like someone was observing bubble, bubbles floating on the surface of the Ganges. And that when one investigated that bubble, one would then see that it's actually pop, empty, insubstantial. It's not what one thought it was. And he realized that in the same way, this form, these feelings, these perceptions, these (coughs) thoughts, these moments of experience are all like that. In the Prajnaparamita Sutra, one's talking about emptiness. this nature of conditions that's not what we thought it was. This discourse is pointing to the profound wisdom of the heart. A lot of us have a lot of faith. We think we don't have faith. We have faith, too much faith in our views, in our opinions about ourselves and about our others and about the world. This is it and this is this and that's that. It was a good day. Or so-and-so is really mean. We see someone with a contorted face. They're mean. I saw it. How would we like it? You know, we, we just felt a pain in our back and we contort our face someone sees us they're mean (laughs) I mean we know wait a minute that was just a moment they're mean they're good (sighs) they're bad news that person's bad news we do that to others we do that to ourselves this relationship to concepts we bow down and Worship them. Some people have a real problem because of our training with bowing. Oh, no, 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 no. We shouldn't bow to idols. We're bowing to idols all the time, bowing down to our concepts about reality, about ourselves, about others. And these concepts make things seem so solid, so black and white, so this and that. This Heart Sutra points to that fallacy. Empty. Empty means there's nothing there. It's empty. 
we didn't hear the bell. We wake up in the morning, oh my goodness, uh, have I missed it? And we kind of stumble downstairs and go into the hall and oh, it's empty. There's no one here. Oh, but then we notice, mm, Kitty Sorrow's meditating in the corner. So did Kitty Sorrow destroy the emptiness? When someone comes in, do they destroy the emptiness? Was it empty? No, 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 it's not empty. Someone's there. Does the emptiness obstruct form? Does the form obstruct emptiness? Within the emptiness is the potentiality for form. Within form is emptiness. Language, language makes it out like it's it. No, no, make up your mind. It is, it isn't. A famous teaching of the Buddha from the Vajra Sutra, the Diamond Sutra, is that all conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows. Like dew drops in a lightning flash, contemplate them thus. All conditions, all the conditions, like a body, mind, feeling, perception, volition, all the conditioned dhammas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dew drops in a lightning flash, contemplate them thus, thus, as it is. The bubble's there. It exists, there it is. It is, and then pop. Someone else says, <laughs> it's empty, it doesn't exist. It isn't. There it is again. It is, pop, it isn't. Is, isn't, is, isn't, good, bad, good, bad, light, dark, pain, pleasant. We've taken our perceptions and our thoughts to be our true heart, our true wisdom. Yes, there's some wisdom in the thinking mind. It's a tool. But it's not the ultimate wisdom. It misleads us. Thoughts don't capture that. If you say it is, it, it existence, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, can't embrace the insubstantiality. If you want emptiness to be nothing, it doesn't embrace that there it is. We're angry. It is. I'm angry. And then it, it's gone. Wow. It appears like two. Form and emptiness appears like two. But actually, it's not two. It's not dual. It's part of a mysterious, undivided perfection.
So when we try to pin down this, this reality, almost everything we say is not really quite right. That's why when the Buddha gave us encouragements to reflect on reality, he put it in negative terms. Think of it as, learn to see ahnicca. It's not permanent. That's a way of unlearning, because we're so certain things are things. We think we know what's what. I know what that is. It's just another boring meditation. Another day, more trees out there. (laughs) More people. God, another Dhamma talk. I hope this isn't a long one. (laughs) And then our our language is just basically written off reality. Oh, yeah, Oh, with myself again, oh my goodness. Uh, and it's, it's, uh, it's not certain. That's so helpful. That was Ajahn Chah's mantra, my nah, not certain, so that we look again. It's not telling us what it is. Anicca, it doesn't have to be on a big placard. We don't have to go around, everything is changing, everything is changing. I mean, because there's the deathless, there's that which doesn't change. Nothing is changing. Nothing is changing. Nothing is changing. These are, these are reflections, not ultimate truths. So, not permanent. Not satisfactory. Because when we're gripping hold of that beautiful, luscious, sweet meditation, to reflect on it is dukkha. It's not an ultimate condemnation, but it's a reminder to look again to illuminate that experience. Anatta, not self, is again just an encouragement to look freshly. Everything we take, that mood that's so tied up with doubt. Oh God, I don't know which faculty to work on. (laughs) Maybe I didn't get dealt a full deck. (laughs) and God I don't know where to watch the breath or whether I should listen to the sounds and it seems so like me and then we're entrapped a teaching light not self it's just to look freshly rather than as me to touch it just as Dhamma, as part of nature. Empty is the same way when we're, that helps balance us. When we're so used to things being solid, when, when we see something, when we reflect on empty, like the sound is there, the sound of Kitty Sorrow's southern nasal voice is there and it seems to be there and then it's emptied, it's gone. But if we want emptiness really, really to be empty, that's called uh, denial. It's some misguided idea of emptiness. It's just nothing. That's why form and emptiness are intermeshed. 
Master Xinhua, who's the, the great Chinese master who's um, offered us these wonderful teachings on uh, Avalokiteshvara and, and um, the Prajnaparamita discourses and others, he put it like this. True emptiness does not obstruct wonderful existence. Wonderful existence does not obstruct true emptiness. True emptiness isn't empty. Wonderful existence doesn't exist. Because true emptiness isn't empty, it is therefore called wonderful existence. Wonderful existence doesn't exist, and so it's called true emptiness. When we want things to be, when we grab hold of my health, it exists, I'm a champion, my hand was held up and I grasp it, then there's birth and death. I got sick. I couldn't wrestle anybody in here. If we grasp that existence as really there, we don't understand change, then there's birth and death. But if we want emptiness to be to be nothing, then we're shutting off life. But in a moment of really seeing that the nature of things is ever-changing, when we, when we learn to let go, then rather than causing birth and death, our existence can be called wonderful existence. Form and emptiness are intermeshed. Because we're so focused on form, at first our practice has to emphasize a little more emptiness. But then in time we embrace form again. All conditioned dharmas are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, like dew drops in a lightning flash. Lightning flash. We live in Africa, in the Drakensberg Mountains, one of the highest incidents in the world of lightning storms in the summertime. It's incredible. Usually every afternoon and into the evening. And the I never knew lightning had a purple haze around it until I got to Africa. And the, the, the thrill of seeing the amazing forks of lightning. And, and there's something in the heart that, that just wants to come out, don't go away. You try to catch it and it's gone. Then try to catch the next one and it's gone. The the Buddha said our all conditions are like lightning. They're there and they're gone. But in contemplating the, the lightning flash and in letting lightning be lightning, notice each flash keeps dissolving back into the immensity. Rather than trying to ask lightning to be what it can't be, it's the nature of lightning to be ever-changing. 
in letting lightning come and go, letting it be, and starting to peacefully look through the lightning, around the lightning. Be patient with the lightning, noticing that it's all manifesting and dissolving back into vast emptiness. The mind, the heart is like that vast sky, said the Buddha. That actually every condition, vimuttisarasabhidhamma, every condition has as it, at its heart that vast sky. Every condition is changing, flickering, is empty, is manifesting and dissolving in that sky. But wisdom reveals that. It's wisdom. We can wish, oh, wouldn't it be nice if everything was nice and all beings were at peace? And I mean, it's a lovely thought. But if we want to be at peace with reality, we have to know reality, and that's what we've been doing. Though it doesn't look like it, we've been cultivating fundamental relationship, basic relationship with reality, the simple reality of our body, of our feeling. And noticing these feelings and sounds and thoughts and perceptions bubbling up and dissolving back into that sky, that spaciousness, that brightness of our inner listening. The Buddha went on to say, Amatogadasabhetamma that all these different conditions, all these lightnings, flashes, all these sounds and sights and feelings merge in the deathless, amatogadasabedama. All conditions merge. Where do all lightning flashes merge? Where does all the different differences? We see all these differences There's you and you and old and young and big and small and strong and more frail. When we're focused on existence, on form, we just see birth and death and changes. But where do all these forms merge? They merge in that ocean of listening, ocean of silence, ocean of awareness, like the waves When we focus on the waves, we just see, also in Africa, we just see the big waves. I didn't see the big waves till the second time I went in. First time I went in, I'm in Africa. Tanisha and I were on holiday in Hamshlanga, outside of Durban. She's more timid to go in, but I was going to set the tone. (laughs) So I marched in. This wave crushed me, stripped my suit off of me, and I, I staggered up without my suit on, not even noticing it for a little while. I thought my neck had been broken. And then I, whoa, that's a big, then I, believe me, I was noticing big waves, dangerous waves, little beautiful shimmering waves, mm, a good surfing wave, 
And yet that's what perception does. It sees these changes, even gives names to them. But where do all the waves really merge? Are they really, they're, they're different in name, but are they really, really ultimately different? The waves merge in the, de- in the depth. All these differences. When we're focused on form, we, we don't notice that all these forms are arising and ceasing in this mind of awareness. So it is important in this Heart Sutra and in the Prajnaparamita, in the cultivation of wisdom, to begin to question our blind bowing down and believing in our concepts, which break the world up. Yes, we don't have to hate them, we can use them, but know that these concepts, is, isn't, good, bad, are just names, labels, ways of talking. So it's important as is emphasized in the mantra, gatte, gatte, para, gatte, para, sangate, bodhisattva. Gatte means gone. We learn to allow the concepts to be touched and like the lightning flash, let them dissolve. Noticing the silence at the end of each thought, the silence around thought, It's like we go into this room if we only notice the forms and the people get obsessed. Oh, they're in there again. They're not there. Okay, I can go in now. Can we change our perception, not ignore the form, but also learn to notice the space around the form? In cultivating the third noble truth in really tasting deathlessness, peace, It's very helpful to notice the ending of things, the space around things. In our monastic practice, we were taught to notice the gap after thought and before thought. An ordinary thought, oh, it's not raining. Let that thought, listen to that thought, an ordinary thought, and then listen to it dissolve. Get a sense for the silence before and after the thaw. Within that silence are all forms, all potential, all waves, all lightning flashes. Wanting a lightning flash to be still is a recipe for suffering. Wanting a bubble not to burst is a recipe for anguish. In letting things go, gate, gate, letting things come and go, getting a feeling for resting in the ground, the depth. And that depth doesn't is not a verse. We, we practice this. is not averse to form. The emptiness doesn't obstruct the wonderful existence. The wonderful existence doesn't obstruct the emptiness. The form and the emptiness are merged.
So I really encourage us, this addiction to believing our thoughts is cruel to ourselves and others. Our teacher said the most compassionate thing you can do is not fix another person with your thought, like a pin sticking a butterfly into a wall. We, we fix and limit and bind each other up and ourselves with these, when actually our nature is so dynamic. So it's important. This tendency is what the Buddha called papancha. It's believing in concepts. And once you've really believed in one, then you create the whole world. When you make a tiny little mark, I, as a fixed thing, then immediately you get you and him and her. And then if, when you make the, a, a this, then immediately, because it's changing, you, you get a that and a yesterday and tomorrow. You get all this proliferation. The Buddha encouraged us to actually practice, not to hate thought, but to know it, to illuminate that and see its bubble-like nature, to practice letting a thought die, to practice savoring the nameless name, knowing that any name you really give to yourself or to another is, is just another bubble, that our real nature is ungraspable. Easy to say, but difficult to do. I really encourage us all to be patient. Certainly for me, it's a lot harder than I thought it was. But I'm so grateful that I started. And uh, though I might get discouraged, I'm going to keep going. I'll finish with a story from Ajahn Chah. In my uh, exuberance of my early monastic life, wanted to do the toughest practices, didn't lie down for three months. and did, it, was, it was allowed, but I mean, you know, I was, I was in a hurry. And I was uh, at the same time fasting, which wasn't even part of the thing. <laughs> And then trying to do extra extra work to help help the abbot out with their uh, attending the abbot's needs and anyway, no, no big surprise. I got sick and I had diarrhea for six months, and then I started urinating blood, and then uh, ended up in the hospital, and I couldn't figure out what it was. Some hospital in northeast Thailand. Then I started getting really depressed because with all my practices I still that one meal a day didn't seem empty at all I was so hungry time the meal would come and I just I just wanted to be mindful but the next thing I would know my bowl would be empty and I'd feel like a beached whale and I couldn't digest it and I would crawl back to my hut be in pain for hours and vow never again never again and then, 
And then not only that, then I was just uh, supposed to be a monk and ascetic and letting go of everything and breaking through defilements and afflictions. And I just, my mind was full of desire for food and uh, sexual desire. Just, uh, was on fire. And an image came. We would do water hauling every day. I wonder to get water out of the well for our, our monastery. And the villagers occasionally, if their well wasn't working so good, would use our well. And one day from a distance, there was a Laotian girl at, the, uh, at our well. And, and, and um, she, uh, she called out, Laolabo, um, which in, 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 in Laotian is just like, are you done yet? And, you know, just that, just from a distance, beautiful hair, just that kind of phrase, Laolabo just haunted me for, for months. <laughs> and I don't even see that well. <laughs> uh, so anyway, I was just getting depressed, and, you know, all my championships meant nothing, and all my sitter's practice meant nothing, because I was just a, a wreck. And then when we would sit on the platform, I'd look up the line just be a bunch of brown-robed bald heads. I'd look down the line, more brown robes and more bald heads. I was just, you know, a bald head uh, who was greedy for food, had really messy diarrhea all the time, and was just filled with lust. Remembering some girl saying, are you done yet? You know, so so I was. I really felt like I would. I got so. I used to be funny, and you know, I was so depressed. I really thought I would never laugh again. And so I asked the abbot, who was uh, very good, could speak Laotian and Thai perfectly, Ajahn Pabakaro, who was a former helicopter pilot in Vietnam, and became a really wonderful monk. He says. Come on, kitties, or I'll take you over there. So he took me to Ajahn Chah. And Ajahn Chah made some time while the others were at evening chanting. He, he received me, and, um, and he said, Binyang, which is like, well, what is it? I said, Ajahn Chah, I'm really am in bad shape. Just lust and greed, and I feel like I'll never laugh again. Everything seems so dark and impossible, just impossible. He asked me some about my history and all my wrestling and all that stuff. And then he said, well, you know, Kitty Sorrow, you remind me of a, of a chipmunk. <laughs> and it was, I, the word was, because uh, Babaco was trying to translate, and he said, well, it's like a squirrel, a chipmunk. It's some little animal that climbs trees. So he used chipmunk. He said, Kitty saw, he says, you remind him of a chipmunk, baby chipmunk. So this baby chipmunk sees uh, its mother climb the trees and could leap from branch to branch. So the baby thought, well, I'll do that, and ran up the tree and leaped and dog, dog in Thai means fell down, bam, and started crying. And, uh, and the mother said, uh, son, quit crying. You just need to go to school. And, you know, so Pabakro's whispering, he just says, you just need to go to school. 
And so this chipmunk goes off to school and and goes to kindergarten, first grade. And as you can imagine what happens, it can do a few things and then it keeps, bam, falling down and crying. The mother keeps encouraging this chipmunk. No, 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 keep going to school. And so Ajahn Chah has this chipmunk going first grade, second grade, third grade. Somewhere in high school or college, I'm not sure well. And and it keeps, dog, falling down. and, And his eyes seem to go in circles. As I was sitting under him as he was over the, on a chair looking down at me. And somewhere in, I don't know, high school or college, I just got hysterical and was rolling on the floor of his hut, just screaming with laughter. And meanwhile, he's still going. And this, this, this chipmunk uh, not only went to college, then it got a Ph.D. And then by then I got up off the floor and he was still talking, and then it got his Ph.D. And then Ajahn Chah looked at me and said, and one day that chipmunk could do everything. It could climb, it could leap, it could do everything that his mother could do. And I felt this glow of... Because that's our nature. Our nature has wisdom and compassion in it. From that first finger snap of seeing change, we start to let go of these illusions. Little by little by little by little by little, we awaken to the brightness that's already there, little by little, willing to laugh at our failures. And I was just basking in that feeling and then he, he went on, and for years I blocked out the second story, but Tanisha says, I can't tell the first one without the second one. He said, Kitty Sarah, you also remind me of a donkey. <laughs> that donkey has been submerged for some time, but I wasn't ready for the donkey yet. I was still glowing in the, <laughs> having gotten my PhD. But uh, Ajahn Chah said, no. He saw, remind me of a donkey, and this was a clever donkey, and it listened to the music of the cicadas and crickets at night, the amazing music of the forest. Being clever, it did some investigation. (laughs) Don't say it, didn't have wisdom. And it um, was saying, well, how do they do this? And so it observed that these insects, these crickets, what their diet was, and that they ate dewdrops. Hmm. So this very industrious, not only clever, but industrious. There was persistence. You cannot say this donkey wasn't persistent. It licked tens of hundreds of thousands of dewdrops, And then knew it was ready. <laughs> and it prepared itself for making music. And opened its mouth. Breathed in and you know what happened. Now, why did Ajahn Chah tell me that? And just little by little over the years, it is our nature. It is our nature to wake up. We We work, we keep studying, we fall down. We can laugh, we can laugh at our failures. We're learning from that. 
But I, I'm open to suggestions, but I really believe this, this donkey, you know, need, we need also to learn to honor our own sound. There's a lot in our culture of self-aversion, self-criticism. I know I really have that. Where we have to always be better, always be somewhere else. But this practice is ultimately deeply about listening inward and working with what we are, this body, this mind. There is beauty here. Just listening into these groups, oh, the sound of everyone's everyone's sound coming out of their experience in, in an authentic way, just of what we're each experiencing. Did you notice how beautiful that is? May we all find our sound. All beings are our brothers and sisters. The true nature is undivided, measureless. All the mountains, all the rivers arise and dissolve in this one mind. May the goodness of this day, and there has been much wonderful work, by all of us. May we consciously share the goodness of our practice for the welfare of all beings, for the welfare of the whole. May all beings know the bliss of our true nature. Yeah. Uh-huh.
Yeah. 